Years ago, a Christian man told me about a morally compromising situation that he was in on a business trip, a, a tempting situation he could have and should have avoided. He said to me, don't judge me. What did he mean? He could have meant, don't condemn me to hell because of it. And, and that would be right. God is the final judge, and God extends much grace and forgiveness to penitent sinners. Now, this man didn't seem penitent, but maybe he was. He also could have meant, don't find fault in my actions. But is making moral judgments wrong? Absolutely not. Of course not. More, moral judgments are unavoidable, even for moral relativists. Maybe he just didn't want to address his sin. I'm not sure. The phrase judge not is often plucked out of context and grossly misunderstood and misapplied. Judge not is often the catchphrase used to refute moral judgments against the beliefs and actions of others as if there is no absolute moral standard from which moral judgments can be made. But there is a absolute and absolute moral standard, God's law. Judge not has become a sort of cultural motto of America. Truth and right judgment are often sidelined as moral relativism and tolerance take the field. The philosophy of our culture is truth and morality is whatever you want it to be unless it is biblical truth and Christian morality. There is a well-known episode of Seinfeld called The Outing. When Jerry and George notice a woman eavesdropping their conversation in a coffee shop, they pretend to be closeted, a, a closeted homosexual couple. Turns out the woman is a reporter planning to interview Jerry. She eventually does, and Jerry and George recognize her from the coffee shop, and they put two and two together, and they try to explain to her that they are not homosexuals, adding... Not that there's anything wrong with that. The, the episode makes a strong moral judgment, one in favor of homosexuality. The, the moral judgment was so strong and clear that the episode actually won a GLAAD Media Award presented by the Gay and Lesbian Alliance Against Defamation. And Matthew 7, 1 is often misheard as not that there's anything wrong with that in regards to things like biblical sexuality, false religions, or ex the exclusive claims of Christianity. In casual conversation, you may hear Christians sometimes say, but who am I to judge? Often in reference to someone else's sin, meaning I can't really make a moral judgment on that because I have my own junk to deal with, as if perfection is necessary to declare right from wrong. I, I remember a Christian commenting one time on how we should uh, respond to a certain sin, and they said, we're all sinners, as if being a sinner prevents someone from making clear moral judgments. In fact, saying we're all sinners implies that the sin being addressed is indeed a sin. A and the argument, um, oh, and also implies that, the, the, that we are all guilty under 
under God's law. So it's interesting that the argument used to advocate for not making certain uh, moral judgment, a certain moral judgment, is itself implying a moral judgment. All this to say, Matthew 7, 1 is a very important verse because rightly understood and applied, it encourages believers to be compassionate, uh, gentle, and truly loving with others. But when misunderstood and misapplied, it can be used in an unloving way to justify and promote sin, which condemns others. So it's a wonderful verse that leads to true love, but is often twisted and used to redefine love and to promote immorality. I've titled this message, Censuring Censoriousness. Censuring Censoriousness, and and that's meant to be a a clever title, Uh, meant to communicate with two uncommon words. We don't really use those, those words much. Um, to communicate what I think Jesus was getting at in Matthew 7, 1 through 6. To censure something is to make a judgment with implied condemnation. When you censure something, you find fault with it and you condemn it. We must censure censoriousness. Censoriousness is being quick to blame, quick to condemn. It's a spirit of fault-finding accusation, indictment, and scorn. Censoriousness is not making a right and good judgment on something or someone. Um, If someone is censorious, they are regularly quick to find fault and to divvy out their condemnation and scorn with little to no mercy and benefit of the doubt. So we must make right moral judgments. We must not be judgmental. Do you have the discernment to tell the difference? If we understand Jesus rightly, we are not to avoid all kinds uh, of judgment or all discernment or even all kinds of discrimination in the historic sense of the word. We are to make moral judgments, but we must not make those moral judgments but, but we must make those moral judgments with humility and compassion and gentleness and meekness while being very careful to consider our own sinfulness and need of God's mercy and grace. I have four main points. Number one, judge not means repenting of a censorious spirit. Is verse one a universal prohibition of judging? Well, it can't be. Uh, That wouldn't make any sense. First, the word judge has, as many words do, has various meanings depending on how it's used. Judging can be to decide or come to a conclusion or to prefer one thing to another or to evaluate the correctness of something or to hold a certain opinion or to decide a legal question of right and wrong or to condemn as guilty or to govern. So, You can use judge in various ways. Second, what has Jesus been doing in the Sermon on the Mount? He's been making moral judgments. He's been expositing God's law. He's he's teaching his disciples how to judge rightly, how to discern and apply God's law to life. 
if Jesus actually meant do not make any moral judgments at, at all against anyone, the Sermon on the Mount would be self-contradictory and unintelligible. It just wouldn't make any sense. Third, there are many scriptures which actually command us as, as Christians to judge, even to judge people. Uh, there are many scriptures that, that make this point obvious, but I'll only mention a few examples. There, there's too many to look at, but in, in John 7, 24, Jesus says, Do not judge by appearances, but judge, same word, with right judgment. We are to judge with right judgment. In Luke 7, 43, Jesus said to Simon the Pharisee regarding a correct answer that he had given, and he said, you have judged rightly. Same word. Jesus said to the crowds in Luke 12, uh, 57, why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? Same word. So in one sense, we are to judge, and in another sense, we are not to judge. Can you judge the difference? Many scriptures make obvious that Jesus is not prohibiting all judging, just a certain kind of judging. So what does Jesus mean when he says judge not? That's the question, and that's what we need to understand. Simply put, Jesus prohibits censoriousness or a judgmental spirit. J.C. Ryle explained, what our Lord means to condemn is a censorious and fault-finding spirit, a readiness to blame others for trifling offenses or matters of indifference, a habit of passing rash and hasty judgments, a disposition to magnify the errors and infirmities of our neighbors and make the worst of them, end of quote. Calvin is really insightful and convicting here. He remarked, these words of Christ do not contain an absolute prohibition from judging, but are intended to cure a disease which appears to be natural to us all. We see how all flatter themselves, and every man passes a severe censure on others. This vice is attended by some strange enjoyment, for there is hardly any person who is not tickled with the desire of inquiring into other people's faults. That's so good because it's so true. There is hardly any person who is not tickled with the desire of inquiring into other people's faults. I confess, I struggle deeply with this. Who of us, who among us doesn't struggle with this? Being judgmental is easy. It's like right there, and, and we're in it. And it is so often invisible. As God's beloved children, citizens of Christ's kingdom, we are not to be judgmental or censorious. We must differentiate right from wrong. We must make moral judgments based on God's holy law but we must not be condemning, accusatory, critical, scornful, merciless, or uncharitable. We, we, we should not have that spirit in us. Jesus taught on this because his disciples needed to learn this truth about their own hearts and God's expectation of his people. He's teaching them law. He's teaching them, exposing, uh, expositing to them God's law. 
And boy, they could quickly take that and use it against people to be self-righteous. He's, he's arguing against that. I saw a picture online this week of a rainbow background, kind of like a flag, a rainbow background. Superimposed over the rainbow background is a silhouette of a crucifix. Printed in big letters to the left of the crucifix is, don't use my faith to discriminate. And then below in smaller letters is, judge not lest you be judged. What a bold misuse of Matthew 7, verse 1. It completely misses Jesus' point. Brothers and sisters, our culture doesn't want us as Christians to make moral judgments against their sexual preferences or anything else about their wicked lifestyle. See, God's holy law makes people feel guilty and they don't like to feel guilty. Perhaps if they can deconstruct God's law in some way, they can then justify their sin. Our culture considers Bible-believing Christians intolerant, bigoted, hateful, divisive, and threatening because we make right moral judgments from God's law and believe that those moral judgments are universal. People don't like moral absolutes unless they get to define them. Saints, We must judge rightly. As Christians, we love God's law. God's law outlines the best life, the the life of true love, true peace, and true delight, the life Jesus himself lived for us, the life he died to redeem us to live. God's law is a precious gift, and it is a clear moral standard. That being said, Christians can sometimes be self-righteous jerks, I know because I've been one, as they contend for the truth. We, We sometimes take on this disposition of condemnation. And instead of winsomely inviting people onto the bus, we sometimes try to maliciously push people under the bus. When Jesus said, judge not, he he wasn't forbidding speaking out about sexual immorality, abortion, corporate greed, idolatry, false religions, or any other abomination or sin. But he was saying, we must not be censorious. It's a matter of discernment. It's not a matter of discernment. It is a matter of disposition. Kevin DeYoung is exactly right when he says, believing in the sinfulness of sin, the exclusivity of Christ, and moral absolutes does not make one judgmental. Just look at Jesus, end of quote. And Dr. R. Scott Clark is exactly right when he says, quote, the judgment in view here is the sin of being judgmental, of placing oneself in the seat of God, of determining what is not ours to determine, end of quote. Can, can you reconcile those two truths, those two thoughts? I think deep down, we all sometimes enjoy climbing up on our golden thrones with a sense of self-justifying superiority in order to pronounce judgment on others. It makes us feel good. Well, we must be careful. 
Uh, Romans 2, verse 1 says, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. And there's the point. Paul links judgment with condemnation and hypocrisy. We must know the law. We must identify sin. We must call people to repentance. We must warn about the reality of God's righteous wrath and hell. But the sentence is not ours to give. Condemnation is not ours to give. They are for the holy and almighty judge, the Lord God Almighty, to give. These are important things. In Romans 14.10, Paul says to the church in Rome, Christians, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Dear brother, dear sister, no one will stand before you on judgment day because you won't be in the judgment seat and neither will I. We will be standing before the judgment seat of God. Be careful then, because God will judge you and me and everyone. He's the judge, and he clearly communicated his law for us from which he will judge. The standards, we know. We know how we will be judged. Jesus said, judge not that you not be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Do you want God to judge and condemn you how you often judge and condemn others? I don't. I I hope for more mercy and grace. Uh, be very careful how you judge others. Review the other, the other parts of the Sermon on the Mount and you will see parallel themes of mercy, love, forgiveness. Uh, Dr. Hendrickson said, if you judge without mercy, you will be judged without mercy. Similarly, if you judge kindly, you will be treated, judged and treated kindly. Jesus said, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Are you quick to give mercy? Or are you ruthless? Dr. Dan Doriani said, if we know God's standards well enough to judge others by them, then we know them well enough to be judged by them. End of quote. I also believe that this works, uh, that it also applies to -to person-to-person relationships. See, if you are merciless with others, chances are others will be merciless with you. Judge not means repenting of a censorious spirit. Wouldn't we rather walk by the Spirit and make right moral judgments with wisdom, mercy, compassion, charity, and love? I I sure would. I know that that's what I'd rather do. But my flesh is so strong. My inclinations to judge are right there. So I need Jesus, and you need Jesus, to overcome our censoriousness. The last three points are shorter. Number two, we are often merciful and charitable with ourselves while being merciless and uncharitable with others. 
Jesus expands on verses 1 and 2 with a wonderful illustration. He said, verses 3 and 4, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye? But do not notice the log that is in your own eye. Or how can you say to your brother, let me, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is a log in your own eye? That, that's very effective imagery. That's a very helpful illustration. Why is Jesus talking like this? Because he knows our sinful hearts. He, he knew the hearts of his disciples. He knows how self-righteous we can be, how we have self-righteous tendencies. He knows our pride. He knows the hypocritical standards that we use to think the best of ourselves but the worst of others. Uh, imagine a guy, and he has this huge floor joist hanging out of his eye and he's running around and he's clanking it on everything and he's screaming out about a piece of sawdust in another guy's eye. Well, you would consider that guy a self-righteous, hypocritical nitwit. Hello, Captain Obvious. Hello, can't you see the lumber sticking out of your own eye? Quit heckling that guy. He just has a small speck. Yeah, it might be irritating his eye, but take care of the log in your own. How can people get so worked up over a speck of sawdust in another person's eye when they have a load-bearing house beam sticking out of their own eye? That's very effective imagery. But see, that's the human heart. That's our natural inclination. We will go to great lengths to justify ourselves and to feel morally superior to others. See, if we are merciful and charitable with ourselves, and if we wish for others to be merciful and charitable with us, we also ought to be merciful and charitable to others. It just makes sense. Doesn't mean you turn a blind eye to sin, but it does mean that as we make right moral judgments, we ought to quickly extend mercy and charity because we love God, we love his law, we love our neighbor, and we understand ourselves quite well at a deep level how we, we understand the persuasive power of sin. We know that. And so we ought to be able to understand. Jesus addressed hypocrisy several times earlier in the sermon. So I think here he means don't sit in hypocritical and self-righteous judgment over others who are prone to sin just like you. Now, I don't think our problem is that we notice other people's sins and classify them as sins. I don't think that's our problem. We should do that. I think our problem is that we forget how much mercy and grace we have received from God. We forget the holiness of God and his law. We forget our depravity and that Christ alone is righteous. It's when we forget the gospel that we become critical and harsh with others. If you notice you're being critical and harsh for others, there's some spot where you're just not understanding and applying the gospel. Aren't we often quick to see the faults of others? Quick to exaggerate the faults of others? Severe in our judgments of others? All the while extending much leniency to ourselves? 
Saints, how is it that we can become so preoccupied with a tiny little speck in our brother's eye when there is a ginormous piece of lumber hanging out of our, our eye? Saints, we need Christ's radical grace. Radical grace is mercy and grace. We need our Savior, Jesus Christ, to first alert us to our censoriousness and then rid us of censoriousness and then replace our censoriousness with impartiality and compassion. They thought the worst of Jesus, reprehensible things. You liar, you glutton, you drunk, you blasphemer, you devil, And he is the precious son of God without sin. Yet he extends mercy, grace, and love to guilty and judgmental and hypocritical sinners. Jesus is so much better than you and me. He's so much more virtuous and pure and lovely He was the object of greatest scorn, and yet he is filled with compassion towards sinners. He is infinitely holy, and every little sin along the way is infinite treason against his holiness, and yet he extends mercy and grace to sinners. He is merciful. He is charitable with those who are so merciless and uncharitable with others. And that's talking about us, his people. As as much as the world, the, the secular culture that we live in must repent of their unbelief and their sin, we as a church must repent of our self righteous censoriousness. We must always be repenting of it. James 4 11 and 12 say this. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Boy, that is fitting. James was very helpful there. While contending for the truth that was once for all delivered for the saints, and while preaching the law and gospel, the church must mortify censoriousness. Put on the compassionate spirit of Christ. Otherwise, we may find ourselves competing against the judge and sitting in righteous in sitting in in self-righteous judgment over his holy law that's not the seat where you want to be sitting oh how we need the transforming and softening grace of god i'm desperate for it i'm desperate for it number 3 we will be most helpful to others when we penitently address our own sins and charitably help them address theirs. Here it comes, verse 5. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. 
judge not is often misused to make the case that no one has any right to make any moral judgment on anyone else. And that's not what Jesus means here. The context makes that obvious. Here in verse 5, the point is not to never confront your brother over his sin. The point is to humbly and penitently address your own sins first. Repent, receive God's mercy, grace, and forgiveness so that you will be right with God, certainly, and then most helpful and charitable in helping your brother work through their sin. We're all in it together. We need each other to in the sanctification journey. We cannot ignore the second part of verse 5. Then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. We are most helpful when we are discerning and compassionate. Not either or, both and. We need to be both. We, we are ready to be most helpful to our brothers and sisters when we are actively receiving God's mercy and grace. Why, why is the order of verse 5 important? Humility, compassion, empathy, gentleness. Those virtues are necessary if we are going to help our brothers and sisters become more like Jesus. I can see clearly now the log is gone. Sing it with me. Come on. Here we, all right, no, enough of that. But listen, listen to Galatians 6, 1 and 2. These two verses make absolutely no sense if we are never to make any moral judgments and never confront anyone about their sin. Um, it just won't make sense. But, uh, but we are to make moral judgments and are to confront in the right way. Listen carefully. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, that takes judgment, discernment, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Well, th that's how the church should function. That's how the church functions when it's healthy. We are to judge. We are to notice and label transgressions. We are to confront, but we must be spiritual. In Christ, right with God, receiving his mercy and grace in Christ, walking by the Spirit in repentance and faith and gratitude, and we must have the right spirit towards one another, the spirit of gentleness and restoration gentleness and restoration. As we judge rightly and confront those living in sin, we are to be quite careful because we may fall prey to temptation as well. God calls us to bear one another's burdens. This is how we truly love each other and fulfill the law of Christ. Many churchgoers today and, and you'll hear this in various ways, think that they are loving others by supporting and applauding them in their sin. They may be avoiding censoriousness, which is good, but they go too far and are avoiding right judgment as well and therefore are not truly loving. The people who misunderstand and, and misuse judge not also misunderstand true love. True love is not turning a blind eye to sin. True love is not ignoring God's law and encouraging others to sin because it's hard to tell the truth and, and they might not like us anymore. 
True love is not ignoring what needs to be addressed. True love is not helping someone justify their sin. True love is humbly addressing your own sins, realizing the seriousness of your sinfulness, confessing your sin to God in true repentance, trusting Christ to free you from evil habits, walking by the Spirit in war against the flesh and gratitude for God's grace, and then humbly, compassionately, gently, and quite charitably helping your brothers and sisters address and conquer their sin. That's true love. Think of it in in these terms. Should sick people feel judged and condemned in the hospital among other sick people? Well, of course not. Neither should sinners feel judged and condemned in the church. But be very careful how you hear that illustration. The sick people in the hospital know that they're sick and that they're there for treatment. Jesus was not condemning moral judgments, but rather hypocrisy and being judgmental. Number four, we must carefully judge how we share absolute truth with others. Verse six is tricky. I'm not sure exactly what Jesus is after, but here's what he said, and here's what I think he meant. Jesus said, do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn and attack you. He's speaking metaphorically about people. That's right. He's speaking about people. Jesus is saying that there are people who are metaphorically dogs and pigs. Now, he's not advocating name-calling. That's not what he's doing. We should not go around as Christians calling people dogs and pigs, nor should we think about them in derogatory terms. They are made in the image of God. But don't miss Jesus' metaphor and Jesus' point. The dog metaphor, that hits us a little differently today. Because we knit sweaters for our dogs. We, we talk about them as if they're, they're children, uh, our, our children. And we take them on vacation with us. And, and we even kiss them. And, and I'll admit, that's not for me. It might be for you. You might kiss your dog. Hey, who am I to judge, right? I mean, but, but dogs back then were not pets, They were not wonderful pets as part of the family. They were dirty, snarling beasts scavenging the streets for food. Uh, Pigs were, were unclean animals to Jews. And both dogs and pigs can be aggressive and quite nasty. Jesus used striking metaphor to describe obstinate, hostile, and pig headed enemies of the gospel. He wasn't talking about unbelievers in general, but rather persistent, militant, belligerent, antagonistic, and nasty unbelievers, or as Calvin said, those who by clear evidences have manifested a hardened contempt of God so that their disease appears to be incurable. Interestingly, what is Jesus doing in verse 6? He's saying we must judge. We we need to judge or differentiate between unbelievers in general 
and dogs and pigs who are maliciously close-minded. See, there are many, many, many atheists and agnostics that are very open to discussion. They are reasonable people. They are reasonable friends. And so, so how do we apply verse 6? Well, very carefully, by the Spirit, with discernment, and a deep love for people, even our worst enemies. In verse 6, what is holy and pearls are connected. What's Jesus referring to? Well, I'm not 100% sure of his exact meaning, uh, meaning, but later in Matthew 13, a pearl refers to the gospel of the kingdom of God. Here, Jesus spoke against censoriousness and hypocrisy and advocated humility and charity in dealing, uh, when dealing with sin. So I think Jesus is primarily talking about the gospel, the holy gospel, the valuable gospel. The holy and, and precious and valuable truths of the Christian faith, as well as how we as Christians address others in their sin. Should, should we toss the precious gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ to people who refuse to listen, are combative and angry, who are ready and willing to trample on the precious gospel to show their gross contempt of it? And likely they will, as they're trampling the gospel, turn and attack us. Maybe are pressing the gospel issue, at least at certain times, isn't actually helping or showing those aggressive, nasty people love. Maybe we should simply be quiet, as Jesus was at certain times, and simply be kind to them. Simply treat them with compassion and love. Dr. Doriani said, we should not try to force our message on those who show no inclination to accept it. Should we offer God's truth to those who have demonstrated their contempt for God's truth? End of, end of quote. Some people are just not willing to listen, but are angry and bitter and antagonistic and ready to fight. They're ready to fight. They're ready to attack you. Their pig-headedness is their self-condemnation. Jesus is, I want to be clear about this, Jesus is clearly not prohibiting preaching or witnessing to unbelievers who are opposed generally to the gospel or trying to make a good defense of the Christian faith for unbelievers. He's not talking about that, but he is giving a caution against being careless with the gospel and being careless with loving, I believe, loving confrontation of others. There is a time and there is a place. Proverbs 9, 7, and 8 is interesting. It's, they say, whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse, and he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man and he will love you. Saints, Everybody needs the gospel. Everybody. Our heart should be to get the gospel out to as many people as possible, but we must be wise in how we communicate the gospel to our unbelieving friends, especially maybe our enemies who are persistently and hard-heartedly hostile and combative over the gospel. We must be careful. 
Some people just won't hear you because they've angrily turned off your mic. In Matthew 10, 14 and 15, Jesus told his disciples something that parallels his point here in Matthew 7. Jesus taught them this. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Those are strong words. Strong words of God's relentless judgment upon those who are obstinate and will not listen and bow the knee to his son. Jesus was not messing around. He commissioned, Jesus Christ commissioned the apostle Paul inspired him by the Holy Spirit to write in Titus 3, 10 and 11, as for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. That applies to the church. Strong words, strong words. Saints, some people, even some churchgoers, truly don't want to hear the truth. They don't want to hear the truth. And in some cases, it's best that we let them alone. Now, how do we pull all of this together and apply it? Well, hopefully the Spirit leads you in how to do that. Uh, but simply put, we need to repent of our censoriousness and trust Christ to supernaturally produce compassion in us and empathy in us and and uh, to put true love in our hearts that we can extend to even our worst enemies as we stand upon the truth of his word, as we contend for the gospel once for all delivered to the saints, as we make clear moral judgments. But I really like the wit of our brother in Christ, Kevin DeYoung. He's a very witty guy. I enjoy his speaking and his teaching sometimes. And so I'll end with with his witty challenge, which I think is creatively written. I like how he puts this. Young says this. So this is to help us apply this. Most of us go through life hearing dozens of reports and accusations about celebrities, athletes, pastors, and people we know. Operating under the unwritten rule that where there's smoke, there must be a fire. And that's often true. But arsonists also light fires. Sometimes the cloud of controversy conceals a raging inferno of wrongdoing, but sometimes the pungent smell of smoke turns out to be crumbs in the toaster. Best not to yell fire in a crowded building only to find out later your neighbor likes crispy egos. Now you might have to listen to that quote a couple times, but it's really good. Saints, Let's use right judgment according to God's holy law. And let's not be judgmental and censorious. We need the Spirit. We need His grace for this. Let's, let's work on this. Let's work on our censoriousness. Let's address it. Let's, let's, let's repent of it. And let's do it by the Spirit's leading and by the Spirit's power because it pleases our Father and because we don't want to live like that. It turns us into a bottle of nerves. We don't want to be that. Saints, let's censure our censoriousness. 
and repent of it and trust Christ to help us through. Discernment and compassion are much better choices for us.